condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to the SOT Radio Network. This is the Truth Perspective. Uh, I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week are Neil Bradley, as usual. Hi, everyone. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin. Hi, everyone. Four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's what we'll be now known as. Or maybe just the four horses of the apocalypse. <laughs> or the four horses' asses of the apocalypse. <laughs> Keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, yes. This week we are going to be discussing um, or taking the discussion a little bit further than we did last week, but on a, on a similar topic. Uh, it's related uh, to a few articles that Harrison wrote, a kind of three part article series that. Harrison wrote for Sot, uh, centering around this idea of the fourth turning and Steve Bannon and Trump and what the policies of the Trump administration are, what's going on with the Trump administration, what motivates them, what's their ideology basically behind it. And, and if there's any sense to it, if it makes any sense, uh, and or if it's complete madness or if it even matters at this point. Um, and we'll also be, so we'll be discussing uh, that and, and going further than we did last week. Um, and any other associated topics, I suppose. But we might start off just, uh, we might segue into that by way of just talking a little bit about, uh, you know, breaking news, I suppose, or news of the last few days um, uh, that has occurred at the heart of the international community. Anybody who doesn't know who the international community is, it's America. Yeah, it's just America. It's, it's mm-hmm. it, well, it's not just America. It's America and some of its kind of lackeys, uh, Europe, Australia, maybe New Zealand, but not 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 sure about New Zealand. Just America, Europe, and uh, Australia. That's the international community. So at the heart of the inter- all the rest of the world doesn't matter, of course. So um, it's only what only what goes on at the heart of the international community, which is uh, Washington D.C. That's the only thing that matters. Uh, so. What's been going on in Washington, D.C.? Nobody knows. Well, yeah. Who knows? can never tell because all the news is fake. All the news is fake. That's what we've been told by <laughs> Donald Trump, of course. Uh, and he's probably not far off it. Uh, actually, on that topic, <clears throat> um, the, the, there was something you, quote, you, you referenced in, uh, in your a third, the third part of your article series, Harrison, where Trump, uh, as a few weeks ago, gave a, a press conference, um, and he said that, this is the one where he was supposedly had a meltdown because he said that, uh, he made that now sort of almost famous comment that the uh, the the leaks were real, these are the leaks uh, coming out of the, the intel community, you know, saying that he's 
tied with Russia and all, also, all sorts of other bad things about him. He said that the leaks were real, but the news was fake. Uh, and he was like laughed at because of that, you know. Uh, but, and as you mentioned in your article, it's kind of like, it was a good example of just how brain dead so many people are because everybody, all the kind of Clintonistas and everybody uh, in the, on the on the left or whatever, or anti-Trump land, wherever that is, or whoever, you know, makes up anti-Trump land, uh, they all jumped on and said, ah, Trump's such an idiot. Like he said, the leaks are real, but the news is fake. How could how could news, if, if the leaks are real, how could any news reporting on it be fake? He's obviously, it's a meltdown. He's just losing the plot here. But it's they who are actually losing the plot just for having, displaying the inability to grasp uh, not a very you know, subtle, nuanced, really, quite a rather obvious nuance of what he said, which was that, you know, of course, there are leaks coming out saying stuff about me, but the way they're being reported uh, in the media is fake. Because if someone just leaks a piece of information, first of all, good good reporting, non-fake news would say, well, what's behind these leaks? Is there any kind of motivation behind it? Why is, why is stuff being leaked about Trump in the first place? Is it simply because there's some do-gooder in the CIA who wants the truth to come out or is someone out, out to get Trump and make him look bad? That's the kind of, the kind of investigative uh, journalism that you'd think would be uh, pursued by the mainstream media was, is obviously not being pursued because they're all massively anti-Trump. Uh, not that we're pro-Trump necessarily, but when someone's being, you know, we've never really liked the mainstream media because they're basically shills for big government and they have no integrity whatsoever. So, um, first and foremost, if there's, uh, um, I mean, our, traditionally for us uh, in being, in, in highlighting or exposing the uh, crimes and lies and deceptions, etc. of the American government and Western governments, uh, we've all we've been kind of equal opportunity bashers uh, with uh, by throwing the mainstream media in, in with them because the mainstream media has such a long track record of playing, you know, uh, of of acting as the mouthpiece for uh, corrupt Western governments. So um, we are we're no strangers to the duplicitousness of the of the mainstream media, and uh, so in that sense, we agree when we hear someone like. Or anybody like uh, someone like Trump, or anybody saying that, uh, you know, calling the media out for its inanity and deceptive, uh, deceptiveness. So, um, well, the big thing in Washington was, besides that, was Trump's claim that Obama is spearheading a right. campaign to unseat him. Right. But um, yeah, that's the big thing just from today. But uh, <coughs> the. The reason I'm uh, referencing what Trump said previously was is, is the, the level to which the media has gone uh, or the level that it's at in terms of being able to understand, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of simple concepts, you know, because they're so far down the, the road of uh, demonizing Trump and everything has to be anti-Trump, basically, that um, they're unable to grasp different concepts and the stuff that you, the stuff that you're talking about, Neil, from today is simply a continuation of that. You know, uh, where um, it's probably true that uh, Obama, or I mean, Obama, did Obama, does Obama do everything? Is, it, is that it's the same kind of deal as the decider in chief? Like he's the decider, he's the commander in chief, he makes all the decisions. Um, it, it strikes me that it's ridiculous to even accuse Obama of wiretap. When you say Obama wiretap Trump. It's probably not Obama, right? No, no. Um, but the that allegation 
is kind of linked to what I've just been describing about the, the way the media have been attacking the Trump administration since he basically became was inaugurated, um, because there has been a campaign to demonize, clearly a campaign to demonize the Trump administration. The media has been very much, most of the media has been very much a part of that, and they're so convinced that they're right and that they should be doing this, or uh, that they they're just they expose themselves as idiots. But apparently, <laughs> they're not held up to ridicule because there's so many so many members of the population, um, so many people on Twitter and on Facebook who are backing everything the media does up, they can't even see what the media is doing either. You know, the the ridiculousness of the, these uh, attacks against Trump. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. oh, well, just just on that last point, Joe, I, I think that speaks to something that was discussed um, at length in uh, the third installment of Harrison's series, which is um, the allusion to uh, Lobachevsky's ponderology in the way that uh, these these types of ways of thinking gets internalized by people uh, so much so that they are unwitting agents for uh, ponderization. Uh, maybe uh, maybe that can be elaborated on a little bit, but um, I thought that was an interesting uh, kind of phenomena. Well, what the what the media has basically done, like the the reason it works, is because they they essentially provide the raw material for the way people think, and the way people think is usually an automatic process. Like uh, I was listening to a Jordan Peterson talk recently, and he he brought up the example of well, you know, most people don't know how to think, and he said, you know, I'm not being mean or anything. I'm just, you know, that's just a fact that you have to be trained how to think. You have to like if you want to actually formulate a uh, a thought, you know, an, uh, an actual argument, you know, not argument in terms of a fight, but in terms of making a point using reason and logic and facts, then you have to, it's, it's a, it's a hard process. You have to carry out like two separate conversations in your mind and go back and forth between it. And it's, it's difficult. It's hard work. You'll probably break out in a sweat doing it. But most people thinking is just automatic. It's like with, um, you know, Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast, think, thinking slow. It's like, um, it just hop, it just happens automatically. And what that means is that you, you can only think with what you have available to you. So it, it becomes this kind of, um, group delusion where if there are certain ideas or, you know, memes or pseudo facts that are just floating around, that will form the basis for, you know, the kind of pseudo logic that people naturally come up with. So the main example that I brought up in the in that last part of the article was that was the whole anti-Russian thing where you have these basic premises that are just taken as um, as given like mm-hmm. uh, they just must be true. And so like so we have Russia is evil. OK, so everyone knows that Russia is evil because of communism and because of Putin <laughs> and mm-hmm. everyone knows that the KGB is evil and everyone knows that there's these things called Russian hackers and so when the uh, and everyone knows that Putin is always personally spying on everyone and doing everything evil in the world, so naturally it just makes sense that um, that Putin hacked the election. And uh, of course, it's you know a bit more complex like than that, but that's really what it boils down to. And so in the media, you have this kind of um, societal hysteria going on, which Lobachevsky di- like discusses and describes how it actually happens. And so you get, it's kind of this mutual reinforcement of this just pathological thinking 
where you have totally wrong premises that lead to a, a conclusion that appears self-evident on the surface. And so anyone that hasn't, um, doesn't have the impetus or, you know, drive to actually question or see if something's true will just automatically tend to assume that it's true and then adopt it as one of their own views. And then that just reinforces it um, even more because then when they talk to people, they're doing the same process that the media is doing and it spreads like this kind of thought virus. And so that's one of the, the points that Lobachevsky makes is that this kind of thinking is contagious. It's like a disease that if it's not, if it's not nipped in the bud somewhere, if you're not actually trained to think, there's really no way to escape it because, um, you know, because people think automatically and the, the, the premises that go into their logic are presented to them um, with no alternative. So it's just it's like a, a force of nature that is pretty much inescapable without, um, you know, without something to, to counter it. And oddly enough... You know, so we've we've seen, especially in the last couple of years, that this has just been going overboard since uh, since what happened in Ukraine, the coup there. Um, the anti-Russian rhetoric has just like skyrocketed. But then now there's this, you know, something new has come in, and that is this very persuasive, very um, um, how else to describe Trump? You know, he's just a, a phenomenon who's who's now has come out and countered this, and it's kind of like throwing everyone for a loop because he's he's just speaking like common sense but uh we're getting some background noise from you guys distracting (laughs) don't mind that carry on (laughs) um we're just getting our papers in order here (laughs) i was gonna ask you to pass a piece of chocolate over (laughs) chocolate wrong guess we're not eating chocolate we wouldn't do such a thing right tobacco Go ahead. Well, I guess, you know, that's just the main point that I wanted to make about that. Uh, I mean, Mm -hmm. of course, we can go in like several different directions from that. But in in a nutshell, that's kind of what's going on. It's kind of like echo chamber that the that the media and when we say the media, I mean, the media is is just one part of, I guess, what you could call uh, like an elite establishment. And this is, um, you know, it's determined by, you know, a bit by how much money these people make, um, you know, their education. They're all part of kind of like, uh, you know, a, a, an identifiable group that isn't most of the people that voted for Trump. Like, you know, like the working class, just the, the you know, blue collar workers who, you know, aren't part of the in crowd. And this this in crowd, they all kind of share the same kind of worldview, the same kind of beliefs and, um, you know, assumptions. And the media is just, you know, their voice. And so that's why you see, if you look at the alliance of, um, you know, what's becoming identifiable because of the polarization of American society as the anti-Trump, you know, group, it's, you know, the media, um, mainstream politicians, uh, academics, you know, especially leftist academics and universities and students Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, bankers and certain entrepreneurs but um you know, oh. there's kind of like this group that is coalesced that all kind of has the same ideas and the media is is the the kind of representation of them because i mean that's what the media does it kind of it takes their voice and um propagates it partly because it's the media's own voice too like these people actually agree with this it's... and the really strange thing is that it's like um you watch a lot of these a lot of these people, and of course, some of them are are 
for sure just opportunistic liars who will say anything, but there are people that just actually believe this stuff because they're, I'll say, almost literally psychotic because this is this it is this psychological phenomenon of um, this just uh, crazy thinking that doesn't actually make any sense. And so that's where that's where you get into this cognitive dissonance that Scott Adams has been talking about recently. Like he just had a great example with uh, Bill Nye, the science guy who was on Tucker Carlson and just kind of he really had a meltdown on Tucker Carlson because he couldn't answer a simple question about climate change. And like when you have these, these positions that you've forced yourself into and that you have to kind of do mental gymnastics around and you're asked just a very simple question or, or presented with a very simple point that kind of deconstructs your whole argument. It's painful because that's not what you believe. And it, you know, it threatens to expose that, that you are believing a lie and that you're actually not a very smart person in this particular instance. And most people don't like that, don't like the feeling that that, that that brings up in them, don't like to admit to themselves that they're not very smart and, and certainly don't like to be exposed as an idiot on live TV, you know, in front of millions of people. Mm-hmm. So naturally, you're, there's a defense mechanism against that to protect the integrity of, you know, yourself and your image of yourself, which makes you... Um, just kind of double down and dig dig your hole even deeper, and it just makes you look like an idiot. And there was just an example from today over this whole um, um, thing with uh, Jeff Sessions. That's another thing that's happened in the last week, of course, mm-hmm. is that uh, after Mike Flynn, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, is um, being you know that he's all over the news for his his uh, meetings with Russian Ambassador Kislyak and. Yeah. And so this one Democrat, um, I can't remember his name. He was on Tucker Carlson um, either today or last night. And so I just watched the clip before we came on the show today. And I mean, Tucker Carlson just asks him some very basic questions. Like, is this guy saying that Sessions, Sessions should be investigated and we have to get to the bottom of this? And so Carlson just basically says, OK, well, so. You know, why exactly? What are you looking for? What makes you think? What? Why should this even be investigated? And the guy can't give an answer. He says, oh, well, the, the, the American people just deserve to know what's going on. And he's like, well, you know, why? Why would we? I mean, this guy's met with tons of people, Democrats. Should they all be investigated? Why should Jeff Sessions be investigated? Oh, well, you, well, you know, because Mike Flynn, he, he lied about something. And that shows that there's something going on here. So the, the American people just deserve to know, which it, it's. Uh, it's just insane mm-hmm. because there's even like there's there's no reason there's no um, there's no evidence to suggest that anything untoward was going on between mm-hmm. Jeff Sessions and the yeah. Russian ambassador. But the answer is um, because okay. Russia. That's that's how yeah, mean it is. Russia. Because Russia. I mean that's all. That, that's the, as far as people can go. Why? Well, you, probably if you push them on, they say, "Well, R- Russia's bad." <sighs> Why is Russia bad? They hacked our election. They give you a stream of nonsense, a stream of lies. I mean, stuff that clearly they haven't even thought about. Uh, even from a practical perspective, if it was even true that Russia somehow wanted Trump to win, how would they have influenced it? You know, I mean, I mean, I suppose one of the things that they've highlighted, not just during the election, but previous to the election as well, during the whole campaign and before it, and not simply re- referencing the election. What is is Russian media like RT and Sputnik and whatever else you know? So supposedly Russia is evil for having its own English language non 
Western-aligned media that has a different perspective. In that, by doing that, by the mere fact that RT exists, that's how Russia hacked the U.S. election and allowed Trump to win because freedom of speech, basically, uh, or a different perspective. So, I mean, but <laughs> I mean, anyway, you you follow the line of logic, so-called logic, in this, you just go. But obviously, people aren't even doing that. They're they're stopping right at because Russia, because Russia bad. That's mm -hmm. why. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's the level of thinking. I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that's the level of thinking. It's it's as deep as a thimble, you know. It's. I never thought I'd hear students and bankers lumped in at the same group as Harrison just did. <laughs> just wanted to say that. But yeah, I I, I got what you meant. Um, the intellectuals. The intellectuals. Intelligentsia. Another thing, another term you use. dumb as a bag of rocks. I just want to um, point it out too, and use another term, working class. This is the first time in U.S. history, really, that it's kosher to use that term, the working class, because it's been something that's, you know, verboten. It's, it's non-thought. It's not allowed until fairly recently. And that's something that's come along with Trump, which is virtually ironic because Trump is, you know, supposed to be a far-right fascist, neo-Hitler, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And his, um, his, his brain, allegedly, uh, Steve Bannon, who is the one who's basically made it kosher to say it again, or for the first time ever in the U.S., um, and he's supposed to be a far-right, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I think this is so ironic that they yeah. finally come into grasp with some of the basic historical... Marxist concepts, which they've been banging on up for years, and they're attacking the guys as being dangerous far-right people. <clears throat> and their supporters, by the way, are all people who warn about cultural Marxists and the danger of the left. <laughs> Here they are <laughs> using this term, the working class. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's part of the many weird, contradictory things that come out of this phenomenon we're seeing, the, 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 the contradictory thought all, all the way around. Although at least uh, the, what, what's new is that it's, it's a lot more common sense. I mean, what's new is Trump's and Bannon's um, re reasonably objective analysis of the situation in the U.S. and in the world. And more, at least it's, it's more reality. And a more symbolic or, or almost kind of mass unconscious or archetypal or whatever level um, it seems to me that the freak out over Trump is a result of people in power, like the Washington elite, the establishment that, you know, just this uh, kind of Ivy League types that just rule things and just change positions every four years or every eight years. Uh, those people are freaking out. And the people who bought into that that lie of, you know, America being the greatest freedom and democracy, et cetera, et cetera, uh, those people are, are freaking out because they don't understand the reality that kind of intruded, which was a reality that was eff effectively represented by a large number of American people who decided to actually exhibit a little bit of kind of objective, as close as you can get to objective thinking, or, or they actually thought logically and somewhat sanely in deciding to vote for Donald Trump. And everybody freaked out. The whole establishment freaked out, and all the people who who are basically kind of authoritarian establishment lovers in the U.S. all freaked out. 
because the manifestation of that was that Trump became the president and everybody had a canary. And it's simply because it's like reality suddenly intruded on American life, you know, and they're freaking out. And it's interesting that, that what they focus on, I mean, obviously they're making all sorts of stuff up, anything they can think of to, to make this reality go away. Uh, it's when you don't like a reality that's in your face, you know, and people start telling you the truth that you start making stuff and getting more and more rational to try and make it go away because it's simply, it's like you don't know what to do. You, you, you get hysterical and you, and you freak out and you start ranting and raving and acting like a, 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 a crazy person. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, it's interesting that, that if you look at it from that perspective, that's, that's what, uh, that's what the, the people freaked out about, about, about Trump, etc. And if you look at what they're saying, what their focus is, apart from the stuff they're making up about Russia, they're hating on Trump. Uh, himself as the person, the person that he is, right? So they're digging into him. I mean, especially his character, his pers his persona, his non-statesman-like persona, his big kind of orange head and his uh, sexist comments and his lewdness in his behavior, let's say, or anything you can think of, all the just the basic things like, I don't like this person, he's a creepy person. That's not to say that he necessarily is that creepy, but they're freaking out, they're picking on every every single thing. And uh, it's like we were saying in previous shows, it's this difference between substance, appearance and substance, you know. Uh, these people had no problem with Obama and Bush before him mm -hmm. uh, uh, and all of the people behind them basically being extremely reprehensible individuals um, in, in substance in that Obama had no problem kind of as the extent that he did it but he certainly was the spokesman for it, authorizing drone strikes to slaughter uh, innocent civilians around the world. That's not a problem because either the American people don't hear about that or they spin it in some way that it's all good. They were terrorists, whatever. The level of thinking is so crass and so limited that it's amazing. But anyway, they justify that kind of stuff for themselves. And all they want is to see another video of Obama doing some sexy dance moves with Ellen or something. With Ellen. And then they're happy. Speaking of whom. And they're happy, right? Who went on Ellen's yes. show this week? W. George w. w. So, yeah. So, I mean... To denounce yeah. Trump. Right. <laughs> so, it's just... It's kind of... I don't know. It's it's shocking. And it's like... It's that reality intruding, you know, where mm -hmm. Trump comes along and he is much more in line with... Uh, and as as a person, the kind of person he is, is actually much more in line with what America is, right? And the way uh, American politics works, and he's more honest about it. But at the same time, he's not as bad as the people, I think he's not as bad as the people who came before him. He actually has some integrity, you know, has a little bit more integrity than those other people. He has a bit more heart than those other people. The Obamas and the Bush who have no heart whatsoever, because anybody who would happily defend the slaughter of a whole extended family in Afghanistan or Pakistan by summary, you know, by summary execution from, from a drone is, is, <clears throat> is a reprehensible human being. Yeah. Uh, so, but Trump doesn't, I don't know, I mean, does Trump do that? I don't know, there's drone strikes going on, there's obviously America's still warmongering and all that kind of stuff, but I haven't heard Trump come out and defend 
the kind of slaughter of civilians around the world that is a hallmark of US foreign policy. I haven't heard him yet come out and defend that in the same way that Bush and Obama and all the rest of them did beforehand. So it's like you have to think a little bit to be able to, to be able to weigh this up and see what's better. But these people respond to Trump only on appearances and they don't know anything else below it. They don't know what's going on behind. They don't care. They don't care to actually know what the reality of... Uh, I mean, I could forgive American people, like these American people who are interested in politics, and obviously not our listeners because you're all smart enough to not be that interested in the sense of not be identified with it. But I could forgive... Uh, Amer- I could... I could. I would blame only the, the elite in America if everybody in the US, all the, the entire population, just had no interest whatsoever in politics, walked away from it. But a sizable percentage of them do, and obviously actively supported Clinton and thought she was the greatest and all this kind of stuff. Those people are a major problem uh, when they do not understand or admit or recognize the reality of what people like Clinton stand for. It's the, basically, you're talking about crimes against humanity here. You know, so you have these these anti-Trump people effectively are the ones who whitewash crimes against humanity, the slaughter of innocent children around the world. While, so they whitewash and, 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 and are apologists for that or, or ignore that uh, or justify it in some way. And instead, they, they complain about Trump's uh, sexist comments and his unstatesmanlike appearance. And they just ridicule him and laugh, laugh at him as much as possible for things that, most of which, as far as we understand, are excusable from the point of view of human foibles. Trivial. Uh, like they're trivial, but they scream at him for that and, and whitewash the slaughter of innocent children. What kind of people are they? What kind of people are, are those people who do that? What are they saying about themselves from their own conscience point of view? I mean, and, and ignorance isn't, you know, it's not, a, it's not an excuse. It doesn't, doesn't get you off. You know, it's um, uh, when you do have, that, do have the ability and access to information to know better, but all you're doing is simply refusing to think about it, refusing to go with the uncomfortable truth because the uncomfortable truth repels you so much you end up uh, whitewashing and justifying slaughter of innocent people mm-hmm. and does that make you culpable well to some extent mm-hmm. well you brought up uh, George W. Bush's appearance on Ellen DeGeneres' uh, morning uh, talk show program and uh, this is just a Yes, yes. <laughs> the rehabilitation of George W. Exactly, uh, where he's he's now being brought on these uh, talk shows, and because uh, he's got this um, this book that he's put out, which is a series of portraits of uh, of of warriors. This book is called Portraits of Courage, which uh, kind of harkens back to JFK's book Profiles in Courage, uh, which he kind of I think shamelessly. Um, yeah, w- alludes allude to. W's a real and, JFK, uh, any? Oh, <laughs> and and the thing is, I mean, you have uh, you have him on these talk shows. You have the folks on on the View, which is another one of these kind of uh, pseudo liberal um, talk shows uh, that are that are talking about now embracing W, just because he's saying that Trump is a racist, just because he's saying that Trump is a bigot. 
and and that seems to be the the kind of skin deep uh, um, reason for embracing arguably one of the worst uh, presidents and leaders in, in in American history. The rehabilitation of of George Bush uh, in the form of his coming onto these programs and and being lauded by uh, people like Ellen DeGeneres and others. Ellen DeGeneres uh, because he. <laughs> very good <laughs> yeah and i mean she she is also um this kind of a i mean for the most part she's just an entertainer right yeah. um oh speaking of which i should have added entertainers to that list that i made mm. previously about mm-hmm. all these groups coming together mm-hmm. you know well yeah i mean all of these entertainers uh you know meryl streep included with her with her uh golden globe uh, acceptance speech for a lifetime achievement uh, and how she was dramatically affected that she weak and lost her voice when she when she heard it. You know, uh, such a such a morally righteous you know good person that she would have such a reaction um, i mean this is uh, this is really this is really bad um, you think like the logical reaction would be, oh my God, you know, George Bush is saying bad things about Trump. Maybe Trump's onto something, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't listen to the guy that I've been hating for the past 15, 16 years. Mm. Yeah. Kind of like listening to whatever uh, Henry Kissinger says and, and, and saying, okay, the opposite is true. <laughs> but, but no. <laughs> right. Not going to happen. Yeah. So, um, have any of you looked into this? I I don't know what it is. Is it theory or is it fact that Obama or the Obamas plural are are going to be leading a campaign? What to a counter revolution from their mansion two miles from the White House against Trump? Is this conjecture or conspiracy theory, or, or is it basically true? What, what, what is that? Well, I haven't looked into it yet. Um, I've just, you know, I haven't read the articles or dug any deeper, so I can't say at this time. Do you know Elon? Yeah, well, he's, uh, I forget what the name of the organization is. I, I know the acronym is CAP, and it's been around a while, and basically, uh, you know, this, this CAP organization I think it's like Center for American Progress or something, uh, has this, um, this manual. Uh, so what they're doing, basically, is they're giving instruction to uh, activists and protesters who are funded by probably one of these State Department-funded organizations. And, and they're going to... Uh, like town hall meetings where Republicans are speaking to their constituents and they're shutting them down. Essentially they're shouting them down with, you know, uh, all, all of this, uh, you know, anti-racist, what have you. Uh, so basically, you know, in the name of democracy, they're stifling, you know, other people's voices. That's another one of these ironies here, right? It's like, uh, you know, they're, they're so, pro uh, free speech that they have to shut down everybody else's free speech. Um, and so there, there is a, there, 
there is a strong element of, of truth to this. It seems that Obama, among a few others, is probably the point man in in kind of uh, creating this infrastructure for dissent. Uh, you know, these liberal protesters are being weaponized by Soros and and uh, and intelligence agencies of the U.S. to uh, to not gain any momentum, to not communicate, to not say anything that that falls outside of uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN. Right. And, yeah. Uh, we've also heard from Trump this week that uh, he accused Obama directly, well, the Obama administration, of wiretapping Trump Tower late last year during the campaign. Obama fired back and said that's ridiculous, but it's probably true. But Sort of. It's probably not Obama per se. Yeah. What strikes me in all this is that Tr- Trump Trump wants Obama to be the figurehead of the campaign to to obstruct or ideally, I guess, impeach in any way impede his administration and what they want to do. Okay. I think Trump wants him to be there. I think if Obama is in any way attached to it, that's a bonus. For Trump, what, hear me out. Why is that? It reminds me of what happened in Turkey after the coup last year. The Erdogan and his people initially went, the U.S. did this, NATO, CIA, and made public statements to that effect. And they very quickly changed their tune. And they said, this is a ghoulinous conspiracy. And would the U.S. be so kind as to hand him over, please, to face trial? Of course, Gulen went, what? I had nothing to do with this, but that's besides the point. The point was they quickly sussed out or they got advice from someone that you can't directly attack them. You need to have some apparatus in front of it with which to beat them with. Mm-hmm. And I think Trump has figured out that he he was initially going after the media and he probably knew he was really intending to, to, to get at the deep state folks, but even that's too harsh an attack. So now if he, if he has Obama to hold up and Obama leftovers and hangovers, i.e. people appointed by the Obama administration in government agencies across the board, he can use Obama as a kind of stick with which to fight back. Yeah, we have to be able to identify someone. You have to, I mean, when it's very difficult. I mean, and this is one of the protections that this deep, these deep state deep state actors have is the fact that they operate in the shadows. No one knows who they who they are necessarily or what their agenda is, except you see their agenda by, by what comes out via the media. They're kind of plants in the media and the different people in in, in, in Washington or in, or in, any, in any political establishment, uh, what their agenda is, you know, and they'll, have, they'll claim it's their own agenda and they're doing it for this or that reason. But when you see the results, you know, in this case anyway, you know, uh, uh, that it's <clears throat> what the the agenda of this kind of deep state is, and yeah, I think. Uh, uh, I mean, for what's what's the alternative? If Trump, undoubtedly Trump, and I think uh, the Attorney General under Bush, Mukasey or whatever his name was, um, he was on TV today or, or recently saying that it must have been today, telling uh, telling some news person that that Trump is right that there undoubtedly was uh, surveillance of him during the election campaign, but it just, it wasn't Obama. It was uh, the Justice Department, or it was, um, what did he say, it was, 
at the behest of the Attorney General. Now he's he's saying that he's saying this as a former Attorney General. He's saying that uh, there was surveillance of Trump at the behest of the Attorney General under Obama at the Justice Department and through the FISA court. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, if you ma- I mean, if you imagine, I mean, that's going one step deeper to closer to the reality. But I mean, does anybody doubt that? The CIA and the NSA and all the Intel backroom boys was going to be doubt that they were had had taps or were listening in to members of the Trump campaign, given that uh, we assume they were so much against uh, Trump becoming president. Of course, the first thing you're going to do is is, is listen to everything they say to try and uh, kind of work against them. I find that trying to develop a plan to work work against them. You're going to need information. So undoubtedly they were. Um, but of course Trump can't go down that rabbit hole because he doesn't know who the ultimate people are. Let's say he may, he may have suspicions, but who's he going to point the finger at, you know? It has to be somebody who's responsible for doing this. He, it was the CIA. Well, who in the CIA? What, the director of the CIA? Well, maybe, but can you prove it? Is he just going to say, no, that's ridiculous, and what are the American people going to think, you know, oh, was it the FBI? Probably not. The FBI works for this and that. You know, they've got, they've got a remit. It's not to to to, uh, to spy on presidential candidates, neither is it the remit of the CIA. So uh, the most obvious person to blame it on from a rationale perspective, to make it make sense to the people who might listen to it, um, and to make a more convincing argument, is to say that it was Obama, because Obama was the president, and everybody can understand with their really not very well-functioning brains, they can at least understand that, yeah, well, Obama probably uh, had a a vested interest in Trump not being uh, president because he was buddy-buddy with Clinton. Clinton was his Secretary of State and they're Democrats and stuff and the whole Democratic establishment uh, didn't want uh, Trump to win because they didn't like him, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So the obvious person to pin it on in that respect is Obama, if you're going to give a story, you know? So you're telling the truth. Mm. You know, he, he's he's correct, but he's not accurate, if you know what I mean. He's correct that there was surveillance, but he's not accurate in who uh, who was doing it. And he can't maybe be accurate because it's not possible. So We should point out that if mm-hmm. Obama does step up in any way as a, a figurehead for the anti-Trump movement, it would be without precedent in U.S. history. A former president basically campaigning against... His, his successor. Yeah. Um, that's that just hasn't happened before. And you know why it hasn't happened before? It's because it's a handoff of power between Republican Democrat, Republican Democrat, right. Democrat Republican. It's a handoff of power to the same people to, to to your buddies, yeah. basically. So you don't you, obviously you're, you're, you don't have a problem if you're the former president with the president who who succeeds you, because it's all good. It's all keeping it in the family, right? But the fact that uh, any that would happen, or that any president or people around a former president will have a problem with the incoming president would be because there's something not establishment about that incoming president. Yeah. Uh, but right. this isn't completely without precedent, though, because this phenomenon has been happening to some degree or another in other places in the West in recent years. In the UK at the moment, it's clear to everyone now that Tony Blair is the one pulling the strings to try and get rid of Jeremy Corbyn for the last year and a half. Um and he's not even the prime minister yet. He's only leader of the opposition. But that's how much they fear and hate and loathe him, <laughs> that they want to get rid of him now. And Blair is key in that. He's even talked about actually running for leadership of the party again. I mean, he's been, almost, it's been 10 years since he left. And he's, he's thinking about coming back. That's how, like, dire the situation is there for Blair's the division. British elite. 
In a similar situation in France, Sarko left office after losing in 2012, swore he'd never do anything politics-related again, and then tried to run for candidacy for basically the Republican uh, conservative right uh, primaries in France. He was trounced, as it happens, in, in those primaries. But it's a similar kind of thing, I think. I wanted to uh, ask Harrison a question. Ask Harrison about the implications for Hysterica America. Um, well, you outlined, you, you, you quoted Lobachevsky's description of what happens, right? When a country gets mm-hmm. this kind of hysteria going mm-hmm. to a, an advanced enough level that uh, all kinds of evil things happen. And specific things you you described were, you know, someone could come along and, you know, make the atmosphere such that you really are afraid to make fun of the mm-hmm. commander-in-chief and even even amongst friends and family. I mean, you're, you're careful about mm-hmm. what you say and so on. This is a full-blown pethocracy. And at that point, Lobachevsky said, there's nowhere to go but down. It, it, it won't last so long, you know. It's inevitable that mm-hmm. it will crumble. It might take decades or it might just take a few years. Um, do you see that happening in the States, really? Do you think, like you said, that you said that the ingredients are there, and all it could take is a spark. Mm-hmm. Well, what I was well, thinking was, I tried to look to history and find precedent. Obviously, Lobachevsky is talking about the Eastern Europe under communist Russian control, and he's also referring, making historical reference to Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of historical references, though. For the Western world, more specifically the Anglophone world, and I couldn't really find. I mean, think of the British regime. That's been going. It's been going as the United Kingdom since 1701, and it just seems that whenever they do come, approach a crisis, they always manage to avert it, and still remain on top or near the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, the elites aren't overthrown in any internal revolution and their colonies continue to exist in some form or another abroad. Um, what worries me is that actually the U.S. might not get, it might avert a full-blown pathocracy and continue on mm-hmm. indefinitely. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I, I see the problem too, and it's something that I've been thinking about, uh, well, for years, but a lot in the last, um, you know, half a year or, or year, you know, during this last election cycle, because there are, you know, history is complex. It's really, it's really hard to, to first of all, get enough data of, you know, all previous historical examples and taking into account all the specific, um, you know, context of each individual country, and then to be able to predict, you know, what happens and what will and won't happen. So, you know, just to preface by saying it's really hard, um, it's hard to predict. Um, I'd say that if we just look at a kind of, I'd call it like a taxonomy, you know, uh, if we try to get a group of categories to, you know, the words that we use to describe certain phenomena, then I'd say that there is this thing, you know, what, what you just called like full blown pathocracy. And, um, I think that the to keep it in perspective, that's that's it's one particular kind of evil. Just like Lobachevsky said, it's um, 
you know, you might have two different diseases and they may be different in some ways, but they're both diseases. So um, it's really to say that um, I think what you were implying by, by, by what you just said is that even if the U.S. Um, avoids a full-blown pathocracy, that's not necessarily a great thing um, because like the British Empire, it can just continue on and that makes uh, it just, um, what's the word? It creates so much suffering for so many people in the world that, I mean, you can't call that a good thing. I mean, the only relatively good thing about it is that you have, you know, this one country like, well, or, you know, the Anglo sphere, but you have like Americans who can still live their lives in the, you know, in the illusion that, uh, that everything's great. And some of them even have, you know, decent lives and they can, you know, they, they don't have to have to worry about going out in the street and, um, you know, being picked up by the police and put in prison for 25 years because they might've said something, you know, innocuous to their neighbor, you know? So they, the, that is kind of like, I guess that's the, 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 the bright side of, of, uh, this whole situation is that some Americans and some Canadians and, you know, British people, um, you know, get to get to keep living the relative good life. Because, I mean, let's be honest, like life in North America and Great Britain, um, you know, even the poorest of uh, of all these countries are still way better off than the, you know, the, the poorest in dozens of other countries. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, it's not like it's it's hard to look at it and just try to figure out okay well what's what's good and what's bad well there's bad everywhere and there's different there's different kinds of bad and there's different levels of it um so is, is it possible well if i just preface that by saying that anything's possible you know will it is it probable or not that that's hard to say and i don't know um but i i think that just the fact that it may be possible um just by taking that into account it 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 can't hurt to um, to look at things from that perspective and to see how that might progress and what life would be like um, in that situation. And I think, because I think that, uh, you know, um, it's that kind of fear about the future. If you're, if you're thinking about possibilities, it doesn't make any sense to kind of go catatonic and, uh, um, you know, curl up in a ball and not do anything because something bad might happen in the future. But it does help to think about possible scenarios like how can my life go wrong? How can like my national life go wrong? How can the life of my country go wrong? And then if that scares you enough um, to then maybe try some try something different. And the thing is, is that by by instituting, you know, some of the corrective measures that Lobachevsky talks about specifically for that pathocratic situation where things are horrible for everyone that in itself um those measures would actually make any country a bit better and it's pretty pretty simple things like um he give like in the in the beginning of the book he gives i think like two or three main um like overarching policy things that he thinks would be the most important one is um just popularizing information about psychology and psychopathology. So getting as many people in the general population to know um, about their own, you know, personal psychology and the way their brains work, um, you know, that would, and that would be, 
you know, cognitive biases and things like that, you know, learning how to think, learning how you think so you can learn to stop thinking the way you normally think and being able to to catch in yourself and others these errors, which is an endless process. I mean, it never ends, but uh, the better you get, the the more healthy you're able to think and the more you're avail- you, the more you are able to avoid making certain kinds of mistakes in the future and that in the in the national sphere that translates to you know foreign and domestic policy mistakes and how to interact with other countries the second one is to um institute some kind of like um corrective or you know some kind of policy about um preventing you know certain types of individuals from gaining positions of political power so that would be that and that necessitates having that that basic knowledge already at your fingertips. So you've got to get people aware of, you know, the problem of psychopathy, for example. What is it? Who are these people? Um, you know, so um, making that just a, a, a public, um, popular notion and then instituting a policy that would prevent these kinds of people from certain positions of power. Um, it's kind of, it's in one sense, it seems really simple. And in another, it's kind of... Uh, a pipe dream because, um, you know, you run up against some, some stiff resistance when you get to a certain level. I'd say the only positive thing right now is that, um, you know, there are still researchers that are actually, you know, researching psychopathy. I mean, and it wouldn't, it would have been illegal and these people would have been already arrested and, and disappeared if it was, um, you know, a full, full, full blown pathocratic situation. But basically just what I'm saying is that, these kinds of policies would have uh, a net positive effect if they were instituted. Um, But so I think that it is, there is a benefit to at least entertaining the notion that this is possible because, you know, who knows it could, Mm -hmm. something could happen. Like if there's a big enough disaster, you know, catastrophe in the United States, it could have something to do with an economic collapse or, you know, massive, um, natural catastrophes, uh, you know, natural disasters, or um, if there's, you know, a civil war that is provoked or or, um, or that happens naturally, all those things, all those conditions in a crisis scenario like the, the like Howe and Strauss in their fourth turning book write about, when the conditions are right and there's a big crisis, that's when these things are possible. And I, th- I think that even if you look back in... Um, you know, in Eastern Eastern Europe and Russia and uh, Germany, when these same kind of developments were happening, you hear people saying, you know, at the time and afterwards, you know, we were a modern, you know, European nation. Uh, you know, how could this have happened? You know, we 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 were we were civilized, and then we we descended into barbarism. And it's this. I think that no matter when it happens, that's the that's the kind of mentality that you'd have. So I think that if you no matter how you know good things can look, no matter how advanced a civilization can be or a culture, it can go south and downhill really fast in a way that's almost unpredictable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's probably really hard to predict exactly how it will happen. Just the benefit of ponderology is that um, it does happen, and here are the kinds of things going on beneath the surface and and the the kind of generalities of how we get there, but. Um, for all the people that like think that Trump is the next Hitler, for example, you know, they're sure of it and they're, they're sure they can see all the signs, but the, it's, it's never that obvious when it's happening. Um, and cause usually, I mean, there's a, 
there's either like massive support or it's this kind of um kind of subversive um like how would you call it well it's it's like a regime change situation where you can have you can have a revolutionary you know party from within that takes over or you can be taken over from some external um power whether it's a foreign country or even like uh you know an external um faction within the existing government but what then happens is that things change radically that um that many will see as positive changes and that um don't end up working that way um there's just well i hope to you know think about this and uh formulate my thoughts a bit clearer on it for you know some future articles because that's that's kind of like I said, what I've been trying to think about, think about and, and work out, you know, in detail, because, um, like I said, at the end of the, I think it was the third article, um, you know, all these people that are scared of Trump being Hitler, I mean, they're not, they're, they're in general, their fear isn't that irrational because I think that anyone should be afraid of, you know, the next Hitler, no matter what country they're in, Mm -hmm. it's a terrifying prospect to actually think about. They may be a bit misguided in where they're, you know, where they're seeing the next Hitler, but, um, but the, I think just the, that, that fear is kind of like visceral. There's this kind of collective, um, you know, understanding that things can go horribly wrong. Um, but if you don't have the, um, you know, just the, the historical awareness and the awareness of like all the kind of intricacies of how the system as it is works, then you can kind of, you can go in some really, um, wrong directions with it. And ironically, it's, it's often, um, you know, a, a relatively reasonable, like just cause for, um, for a, um, well, I'll just call it like a revolution that gets the people behind it that ends up leading to something like this. Like, uh, I know that, uh, if, if some of our listeners don't know, RT is doing something really cool, um, this year with their, um, on all the, well, on some of their Twitter accounts and they've created all kinds of Twitter accounts for historical personalities related to, you know, the Russian revolution in 1917. So they've got an RT um, Twitter account called Russian Telegraph where they uh, retweet all of these people. Like you can, you know, get tweets from Lenin and the, you know, leaders of, um, you know, workers associations and, um, you know, the gendarme generals and all this stuff. It's, it's, it's really creative. I, I've been enjoying it on Twitter. Um, but you see that like, it makes sense when you look at look at it how it's actually happening. Like you have people who have you know just or you know they've got reasons for for hating the government, for example, mm-hmm. and they think things are terrible. And you know the government needs to be torn down. Now let's translate this into the modern times. You've got all these kind of anti-Trump people, and they're saying, "Oh, well, look, we've got all these reasons why Trump needs to go." Some of them are are just made up and some of them like you can you can see okay well you know that kind of person just wouldn't agree with that kind of policy so you can understand why they disagree with it and but then if it takes on you know enough steam then you could have this kind of popular um you know counter revolution you know against the the trump revolution it can really go either way and in that case you'd have millions of people that are totally sure that they're getting rid of the next hitler Mm -hmm. and if things get shaken up enough then things can get, you know, a lot worse when they put in there the people that they think will, you know, set the country straight. It's, uh, so the, the way they go about it, they could end up bringing about the very thing that they fear from Donald Trump. Right. 
I think that's about as close as we can get right now mm -hmm. uh, in terms of our crystal balling. Um, we're just going to have to wait and see, I suppose. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a Frenchy Frenchy connection. French connection to this. Uh, there's kind of parallels. I know there's parallels or has it's been said there's parallels in other European countries but it seems that the, the, the closest parallel that's shaping up right now is uh, is events in France leading up to the next yeah anti-Russian psychosis is here the next yeah, in particular leading up to the next um, the presidential election in France which is uh, in April um, April, May I think this year there's two rounds um, so it's it's all been very transparent um, probably even more so uh, than than in the US. Although we have to wait, wait to see what happens in France. But uh, I mean, to give a bit of background, there's this uh, there's a kind of an establishment politician who, <clears throat> you know, establishment politicians in France are pretty bad. Uh, they're corrupt as, as as people elsewhere. But um, the choices being offered to the French people right now are are are, are Worse than they've, they've been in, in previous years, I suppose. There's this establishment politician called Francois Fillon. He was he'd been around for a long time. He was the prime minister under under Sarkozy. He's been hanging around doing different jobs, but so he put his name in the hat to be to run for the presidency this year, and he would have been a contender, uh, except that uh, the media suddenly found out that uh, over the past you know twenty years or something, his wife has been working as his secretary or his assistant, and he's been paying her, uh, you know, with state funds, obviously, with, you know, as a government job. Um, and there was some reference to her saying in an interview at some point, uh, I'm not his secretary or something. And the media jumped on this and said, oh, she was getting money for nothing, you know. Uh, when he says, well, no, that's not the case. That's not what she meant, basically. You know, she was employed as, as my assistant. And But anyway, the, the point of it is that they, the media brings this out uh, a, a few months before the election, when they surely knew about it for for the past, you know, many years, and only now do they bring it out, and it's such a small thing in the grand scheme of things, yet it's being it has been used basically to at this point, all to, to there's calls for him now to just basically res, uh, remove his name from from the from the list of candidates for presidency. So he's been basically trashed, tried by media and trashed. He hasn't even gone to court or anything yet. Um, so it's all been. Excuse the excuse the, the the pawn trumped up basically against against him to get him out. That's pretty clear that he has been removed because somebody wants a different scenario to play out in France. And the other scenario, as as swiftly as this guy Francois Fillon, the establishment politician, has been removed from the equation, this other guy, a younger guy, he's only like thirty eight years old, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, comes in, and it's effectively him now uh, shaping up to be him against the French version of Trump supposedly, which is uh, Marine Le Pen, who has been around for a long time. She's a right-wing nationalist, French nationalist politician, kind of anti... Uh, said to be anti-Muslim and anti-immigration and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so it's shaping up to be this young guy, Macron, uh, as a shoe-in uh, against Le Pen. Now, Le Pen in France has been around for, for several elections. Uh, her father was there, and then she's she's the daughter, and she's taken over the, the, the Front National is the name of the party. And in the last election, anyway, she she's always there as this one where people, French people, kind of 
dabble with voting for her in the first round of elections, but if she gets to the second round where it's just her and the other person, they all crap themselves and, and, and vote for the other guy, the non-Nazi guy, right? They just had a bit of fun. Maybe a vote for Le Pen. Oh, no, 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 definitely not her for president. And then, you know, so they don't, they don't vote for her and the other guy gets in, right? Um, so this other guy, Emmanuel Macron, is like, he has this, had, had this stellar rise to power. He basically has never been elected to any public office. But he started out, um, he comes up through this uh, uh, school of national administration. It's basically like a, uh, an elitist kind of uh, bureaucrat, bureaucrat school, shaping and making of bureaucrats to, or political school to make politicians out of young, you know, intelligent people, basically. And just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a surefire way to get into politics and into, into power in some, some description. Uh, so he's, he goes through this kind of training in the school and then he immediately jumps out of there and goes into the Rothschild Bank, works for the Rothschild Bank for about uh, three or four years, makes makes a load of money there because he, he, he shows a real talent for banking where he basically, you know, uh, oversees the uh, mergers and acquisitions and stuff, uh, mergers of two big major multinational companies and made a ton of money, did, did that for a few years, made a crap load of money, then leaves... And somehow just go straight into the the Secretary General of the Elysee, which is like this political position in, in France where you're not elected. It's only just, it was under Hollande actually that about, I think it was 2012 or 13, that he gets this uh, position uh, where he's like an advisor. He's his eminence, part of this eminence grease behind the throne. Kind of he's an advisor to Hollande. He's got a lot of uh, power and influence to kind of, uh, kind of influence politics and uh, pass laws. And, and in that position, he actually... Uh, pushed a law called a law uh, that uh, uses his own name, the Macron Law, which was basically to prevent any state uh, uh, organization, any any um, what do you call it, um, uh, public. Uh, uh, what's the term I'm looking for, Neil? Any public organization, organization or public company, like basically the roads or you know, you know, the the any public utilities, public utilities from having a monopoly, a monopoly, uh, i.e., it was favourable to big businesses to come in and say, well, we want a we want a slice of the welfare pie, we want a slice of the ports, we want a sl- slice of the train of the rail system or of roads, whatever. So very favourable to big business, and they also and the other part of the law was where it. It kind of was favourable again to big business where it kind of put the kibosh on the 35-hour working week. So basically employees would be forced to work as many hours as your employer wanted. And if you didn't do it, then you could get fired, that kind of thing. So these are the kind of laws he passed. And and then from there, as this position in government, unelected position in government uh, under Hollande, he then just last year goes, I'm going to be president. Uh, all within like about eight years. We've gone out of nowhere. And really, for most of those eight years, being not really anywhere in, 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 in high profile or public profile, last year he says, hi, my name is Emmanuel Macron and I'm going to be president. And he's got obviously serious backers in the banking uh, industry and even there's some suggestion of Soros link groups giving him cash and backing. But he's this kind of wonder boy, basically, who's just come out of nowhere and he's going to be president. And it looks like with this other guy, Fillon, the establishment politician being tried by media and trashed and basically told to bugger off, you know, he, uh, it's going to be Macron, uh, who's going to, you know, he may end up selling France off to the highest bidder, i.e. to American corporations largely, uh, 
Um, and Marine Le Pen, the right-wing neo-Nazi fascist crazy person who, well, that's the way she's presented, but obviously she's not, uh, uh, she's not the way she's being presented or being, being portrayed in the same way by the media as Trump is portrayed as this crazy right-wing radical type person, you know? Uh, but she, apart from her kind of, I suppose, concerns you might have uh, about her policy or attitudes towards Muslims, and I'm having a very France first and France for French people and no immigrants and, you know, banning the burqa and stuff like that in a country like France with 6 million Muslims. Other than that, she's been, for a long time, she's stated, uh, we want closer ties with Russia. The sanctions are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, NATO, NATO can go beep itself. We, France shouldn't be part of NATO. She wants to take France out of the EU. And she wants to take France out of the EU. She Which might collapse it overnight. Yeah, possibly, yeah. So uh, on those things, she's a, she's a good choice. But then she's being portrayed as this kind of like right-wing fascist who would you know, you know, kill all the Muslims or something like that you know, in France. So these, are the, these basically are the two extremely manip manipulated and... Uh, forced choices uh, that the French people are being offered. And as Neil was saying earlier, the, the uh, surrounding all this, as, a, as, as the elections get closer, is they're increasing the volume on the Russia's been influencing this election. In fact, this guy, Emmanuel Macron, has stated just recently that, uh, that RT is, uh, is spreading fake news about him. About him. Uh, so they're just following this More than that, script, you know? He has it in his manifesto, which he's just published. Basically, that Russia is against him and is trying to shoehorn Le Pen into power. Right. The French, the French, this is the psychosis hitting France. They have retrospectively written their history where Marine Le Pen, who's been the leader of the FN for over a decade, I think, and then her father since the 1960s, FN is a creation of Russia <laughs> to destroy Western values and civilization. But see, you can make stuff what like that hell? up. Whenever you're nuts, you can make whatever you want up. It doesn't matter. History is like, it's just such a, you know, vague, mutable thing. Like facts, you know? It's just, whatever. What if I don't like it? I can just change it, no? And say what I want. We'll so, see. We'll see. They think that flies with people. But as we saw last year, it doesn't. Yeah, people said no. In the US, they said nah. Well, how do Americans say no? No thanks. Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> exactly. They said hell no in spite of every signal, every media idiot telling them do not vote for Trump. Do not. Don't do it because no one else is doing it anyway. Look, the polls say so. They voted for Trump. So I can see something like that happening here. Macron can say whatever the hell he likes. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see, but there's been there has been a traditional fear of Le Pen in France, you know, because she's like, she's in theory or has been anyway traditionally everything that the the right thinking average French person uh, stands against. Uh, Le Pen has been, you know, I mean, she's she's fascism, fascism in socialist France, you know, it's uh, it's but but. It, Things have become a lot more nuanced over the it's past number nuanced. of years, and people like, people are understanding that nuance, and, and it's been her, broken down. Those rigid lines have been yeah. broken down for people, so they're not so sure anymore. So it is very uh, open. In France, it's a little bit more. Um, it's, so she's France first. Now the thing is, when you say France first, she's talking about keeping France 
as it was. Now, what is as it was? I put it in quotes because France is the, the, the center, the origin of the lefty revolution, the republic, mm-hmm. the revolution, the, the whole rights of man, the embodiment of lefty liberalism is France. So when she's saying, she, so she's a conservative who wants to preserve that, it, it, well, it's not really going to fly over. It's not going to... She means France before all that. Post-Second <laughs> post World War France, when French people were traditional Frenchies and had traditional family values and there weren't so many Muslims and, you know, General de Gaulle and uh, the hell with NATO and France for the Frenchies. French, I mean, it's very vague, you know, but of course politicians tend to kind of come out with very vague, uh, nice-sounding... Um, you know, catchphrases uh, that appeal to people. But, you know, of course, we're talking here, but we've been talking in this show about, you know, people's ability to think and how important it is that people think because if you don't think about things, then you're going to be, uh, you're going to be conned in one way or another and you're going to be a willing participant participant in, in the con and getting uh, screwed over in some way. So, yeah. Well, I think it's very interesting that Filon... Uh, this establishment politician who, while he might not have had the right idea about some, some domestic policies, uh, was also uh, kind of making right. some statements that uh, that were against the sanctions and against Russia. And so you have the two biggest uh, French politicians uh, running for office who now have uh, less of a chance of of taking a leadership position, a, a better leadership position towards Russia. Uh, and like you said, Joe, this guy, Macron, comes mm-hmm. out of nowhere. He's this, uh, he's a banker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he excelled at uh, mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's already got the script in play. Um, if I lose, it's, it's because of Russian meddling, mm-hmm. uh, which was, uh, which would, which is, you know, kind of what Hillary was doing um, a, a few right. months prior to, election too to some degree uh didn't work for her well you know although they're, they're still trying to use it um but uh you know it, it's it's so if this is a global script basically yeah um it's kind of hedging you know, their what, bets you know in a certain yeah. sense because it, it's the people who are the imperialists the kind of cold, new cold warriors are hedging their bets so they're putting this into play so that uh, even if um even if their candidate loses, they'll they'll get something from it by uh, by being able to say, well, by by being able to ramp up the anti-Russian rhetoric, you know, and, and turn people and basically disturb society to destabilize French society by trying, like and like they've done in the U.S. by trying to turn people's heads, you know, uh, to make them go kind of crazy and think all sorts of irrational, non- nonsensical things. Um, and it seems that Russia is the kind of the the the, the keystone in that. Um, in that process where it's uh, you get people to believe uh, a big lie. And we've talked about this, like, not just in the show, but for many years, about the idea of getting people to believe in lies and what that can can do, not only to the, the person themselves, but to society at large, if a large number of people uh, all believe a lie. It seems to have a kind of non-linear, very negative effect on the society in general, you know? Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to get a handle on this, and actually I, I have a question uh, for you guys. So like a couple of months ago, there was a poll put out, um, to Americans asking what they thought of Russia basically. And in the poll, uh, it said something like 80% uh, 
didn't trust Russia, but there were, there was reason to to think that the poll wasn't well done and and kind of um, biased. Um, if if because Russia is the new war on terror, uh, and and could affect the the thinking of not only the liberal uh, American population, but also those who are in favor of putting Trump in office. Do we have any idea how far gone uh, Americans are in regards to Russia? Are they are they seeing that as part of the deception, like other fake news and things that are being put out against Trump, or or is that something that that is uh, gaining in in momentum and and may um, may help to justify kind of more anti-Russian action? Do we have a, a take on that? Well, I think that um, I think it's really not a big issue for most people. Um, like, if you ask them, sure, because because they've just been seeing it in the media for for you know a few years now, they'll say, "Oh yeah, we don't trust trust Russia." But if if um, you know, I think if Trump, for example, didn't have the level of opposition in the media that he has today, in like two weeks, he could probably turn that around. Like, and people would be fine, you know, with getting along with Russia. They just go along with the flow. I think that for the most part, the there's like a, a hysterical minority that, um, you know, are like the true believers in, you know, Russia being the evil number one enemy. But most people, they, you know, they don't know enough. They don't care enough that they'll, you know, they'll go either way, just depending on who's telling them what to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. I think it's it may be more directed at um, obviously as Harrison was saying at, at the people who are actually paying attention, you know, who are the, the kind of Clintonistas and uh, those kind of people who who pay a little bit of attention to politics <clears throat> to turn them, <clears throat> you know, to keep them anti-Russian. But because that being anti-Russian obviously serves serves a very particular agenda. Um, but I think it's also directed at um, this anti-Russian hysteria. I think it's very much directed at the at the political class, you know, many of whom are actually quite mm-hmm. stupid and ignorant people, um, uh, relatively anyway. Uh, and it's to it's to create a climate or an atmosphere of, of hysteria, anti-Russian hysteria amongst the political classes so that, uh, you know, people won't, it'll be very difficult for people to say anything good about Russia because even if you think it's all nonsense, you they've created that climate uh, uh, well enough that... Uh, that, that that you'd be afraid of being looked at strangely or maybe even called a traitor or being thought of as treasonous if you said anything positive, if you disagreed with that. And, of course, that um, that has an effect, I think, on, on policymaking and law, lawmakers and stuff like that where they're more likely to, to you know, for example, stick with the sanctions and also to, uh, to, to accept uh, people... Who are, who are behind this hystericization, anti-Russian hystericization, who are behind this process to, to uh, who want to have further military advantage, adventures in, around the world, who want to use Russia, uh, evil Russia, quote-unquote, as a justification for uh, the U.S. military uh, involving itself in, in, in parts of the world because, you know, uh, because of Russia, right? Because Russia is doing bad things in different places. Of course, a lot of them understand. Right. A lot of them understand that 
you know, behind the Russia, anti-Russian thing is basically just pure business and pure greed. It's uh, and the fact that Russia is threatening and has been threatening and has uh, uh, actually affected a lot of kind of um, um, or has caused a lot of negative consequences from a financial point of view uh, for uh, American corporations and uh, politicians, you know, who make money in that sense. Uh, that it's hitting them in their pocketbook what Russia is doing, you know, really. Um, and they understand that that is what the anti-Russian hysteria is all about. Um, and Russia obviously is doing that primarily through its military prowess. You know, that's its first, it's able to to back up its <clears throat> claim that it's protecting its interests in the Middle East, for example, but by saying we're doing it, uh, we're protecting our interests, which are largely our financial interests, uh, Russia's fa- financial interests, but we're doing it with the, uh, backed up by our military. So their only response to that in the US is, well, we need to use our military to protect our financial interests, and that puts us at loggerheads or in direct confrontation with Russia. Uh, so there has to be, it has to be a military build-up in that sense, you know, and there has to be, and along with any military build-up against any enemy that you've chosen, there has to be a lot of hysteria around it, you know. In the same way in the Cold War, the first Cold War, uh, they had to keep that Cold War hysteria, you know, the commies are coming, Reds under the band, they had to keep that uh, going to justify, um, you know, trying to uh, maintain their dominance around the world. Mm-hmm. And dominance around the world translates to um, revenue, effectively, for American corporations. Mm-hmm. And it was very su- successful. I mean, it lasted for decades. Uh, we've seen, you know, hundreds... Uh, hundreds of books and films and news programs that uh, perpetuated the idea of Russia as the evil empire. Um, of course, you know, until a few years ago, you know, we had a, a space of one and a half generations of people that haven't been so exposed to the Cold War propaganda of uh, mm-hmm. evil Russia. And it's just kind of um, made its ugly head uh, right. visible again right. very recently. Uh, but they but they have a track record. They've done it well for a very long time. And so even if there's this echo chamber that we're seeing right now within the think tanks and, and the body politic of Washington and uh, the media that that uh, takes evil Russia as a given, uh, you have to wonder at some point um, what kind of um, what kind of uh, how, how well it's going to take on the in the minds of uh, people who have, who are going nuts well, here. Yeah, it depends. Um, it depends but, on depends on how susceptible. We can't talk um, <clears throat> about everyone. Obviously, can't generalize about the entire population. But certainly, there'll be a big big enough section of the American population who that will fly with. Because I mean, you look at how easily that section of the American population uh, are, can have their heads turned in any direction by uh, media propaganda and government propaganda. I mean, you look at. Um, after 9-11, for example, or not, not even after 9-11, after, when, during, when the Iraq war was being argued for, when the little vials of, you know, freaking talcum powder or something were being shaken at uh, the UN by Colin Powell, uh, and, and how Iraq was you know, being trumped up as a, being heralded as a, the new deadliest threat to everybody. Um, <laughs> how when France at that time under Chirac did not, uh, you know, stood against that and 
was a very eloquent speak, speech made by the then foreign minister uh, Dominic de Villepin. Uh, it was translated. You should look it up on, on YouTube. It's a really amazing, brilliant speech um, against uh, the US plan to invade Iraq. Uh, as a result of that, you had, I don't know how, to what extent or how far spread it was in the US, but you had people uh, changing the name of French fries to freedom fries, you know, uh, on the basis of this, you know, the kind of media uh, uh, demonization of France for that for simply saying, no, we don't think invading Iraq's a good idea. Uh, so it seems that there's, there's a segment of American population to, who can just be, would believe any old nonsense that the media spreads to them. And it can be anything. It can be an inane, the most inane thing you've ever heard, that, that one little, a few neurons firing in terms of thinking about it would, would make it a bit, make it, uh, make them aware that it was nonsense. But they don't, they don't do that. They just go with whatever they, uh, the official drum says what the official uh, government or media line is, and they'll believe it uh, forever. Basically, it'll become part of their collective historical memory. You know, this is this was true. You know, um, I mean, Gimpy on on the on the uh, in the chat room just said that she's heard some stuff about uh, um, just crazy stuff about the, the anti resulting from the anti-Russian business. About uh, stuff like don't drink uh, don't drink vodka unless it's unless it's uh, American made or don't drink Russian vodka, you know, which is very similar to the freedom fries thing, you know, French fries to freedom fries. So I mean, how many people in the U.S. are going with that? Obviously, you have to discount probably about fifty percent of the population who pay no interest or pay no attention to politics and that kind of stuff at all. So that leaves you fifty percent of the population. Then maybe you've got a certain percentage. Quite a lot of them, maybe Trump supporters, who are skeptical of it. But you know, I don't know. It's very hard to get a read in that kind of thing because it's the media. The media is the voice of America, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you look at CNN, MSNBC, you know, uh, uh, and all the other ones, CBS and or whatever, um, and all the alter- you know, the kind of establishment slash alternative media, I suppose. Uh, but the main media outlets, if you if you you know, in all the newspapers, Washington Post, Washington Times, New York Post and stuff, New York Times, if you look at what they're saying, their general uh, attitude or their general uh, opinion on, 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 on world events, on what people should be concerned about, and they're telling people what they should be, should be concerned about by their headlines, uh, that's taken as, as, as what the American people think, Right. Yeah. So it's really hard well, to get a read on. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the uh, the second Iraq war um, in the early 2000s that that, uh, that Bush executed. And you had tens or hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating in New York City, Washington, right. around the world. And if, if uh, the wishes of the people, uh, as it were, um, you know, if a, if a better example of the fact that uh, there is an oligarchy, there is rule by aristocracy, a kind of American aristocracy, isn't in existence, uh, you know, that would be the best proof of it. You, you had all of these people who, who, who could kind of see through it enough to say, no, don't go into Iraq. Uh, so I suppose the same would occur with Russia. Uh, even if you did have a large number of people who were out there, 
saying this is all bullshit, uh, it would it would be ignored if you had someone like um, you know like another Bush or or just another one of these uh, two party political hack uh, elite elitist puppet people in mm-hmm. office wanting to execute one of these things. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that accounts for what we could expect to see, even if a lot of people did see through the lies about Russia. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. It's just a horrible state of affairs that the media have so many people in their thrall, you know, um, but that's where people have been, where people have been acclimatized or accustomed to basically not thinking for themselves and looking to, I mean, it's all right in a, in a situation where you have responsible leaders and a responsible media. It's not so bad. You'll, you get a decent amount of truth. But at this stage, um, there's no reason for anybody to have any faith in the media whatsoever or any faith in, in what their governments say in terms of it being uh, uh, the truth or and therefore beneficial for ordinary people or, or, or people in the country in general. There's no reason for them to think that at all. And there's every reason for them not to think it. But it's a difficult thing for people to, to make the move from, you know, to move from uh, being naturally almost dependent on authority to tell you what's going on to dismissing mm-hmm. authority as a bunch of charlatans and liars and having to think for yourself. It's a kind of scary thing for people to do. And if people are isolated and in the modern world, particularly in the West, people are very isolated from each other and stuff. You, you don't have a lot of, you don't feel like you've got a lot of backup, you know, you feel like you've got a kind of community around you. You can rely on and you can get some kind of sucker from or sustenance from in the sense of, or support from in, in, in terms of feeling that, other people share your opinion and can validate your opinion and you all agree on, on a certain view of the world. And I mean, people crave that kind of, very naturally crave that kind of uh, sense of um, connection with each other. Um, and the big modern mega cities and stuff aren't a very good place to find that connection. They generally tend to destroy it, you know. Um, and the mo- modern Western lifestyle isn't very... Isn't very good for that either. The way people work and, and and what they're encouraged to do for for entertainment doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't encourage that kind of uh, sense of community and bonding and that kind of thing uh, and creating a a kind of group of people that you can rely on, you know, so uh, that you can feel supported by. You know, people are very isolated, so they look to authority. That's all they've got. They look, you know, uh, they look to authority, and uh, authority is telling them a bunch of lies and leading down the garden path to who knows where, but it's probably not a good place. So it's, you know, it's more important than ever, ever, I think, in these times that people, that people do try to form little communities or f- form uh, groups of, of well-meaning people who are, who are willing to think or able to think for themselves, you know. Because we can't beat up on people too much for wanting to look to authority for their, you know, for, for what's happening in the world, for for a view of reality because if it's just them, what are they going to do? I mean, people feel isolated and alone and uh, vulnerable when they're on their own, you know? So, but you can, you can solve that problem by, even if it's on the freaking internet or something like that, they, initially there can be a kind of sense of, of community and, and common, com- a common view of things that is, that can be, provide a lot of support and, and strength, you know? in trying times and times like these were chaos everywhere. And I mean, it's, it's really disturbing, you know, for anybody to look at the world 
look at the state of the world today and, and try and figure it out or try and make sense of it. You know, it's, it's a very disturbing thing. They have to wade through all of those lies and, you know, claims and counterclaims. You don't even know what the truth is anymore, you know. So what do you do? Well, a lot of people turn off. They just walk away and say, to hell with that. I'm not going to stress myself out by trying to figure that nonsense out. Um, so they don't, they don't and, and if everybody does that individually, you know, uh, then it's not a good thing. People should should be coming together effectively. Those individuals who feel who feel that they're, the stress response from trying to figure out what's going on in the world will stop looking at the source of the stress effectively because the media does that and governments do that. They, they deliberately fry your brain, you know, with the information they're putting out. They're deliberately trying to freak people out and destabilize people, you know, psychologically effectively by by creating chaos, you know. I don't know if they're doing it consciously, but that's the result of, of what these people are doing because everything they do is a lie. They, they, they lie all the time to people. They don't tell people what the, the truth is. Uh, and they give them a load of nonsense and then you're, you get this information from the media, from, from authorities uh, about what's going on in the world and then you see the results and it doesn't match with what you're being told. It's this cognitive dissonance that, that is very uh, destabilizing. So you need to not do that anymore and go and not look at that source of, of, of frustration and, and, uh, and stress and, and find someone, some people, a group of people who are trying to make sense of it, you know. Of course, the alternative is just to walk away, like I said, which and a lot of people do that, walk away and, you know, throw themselves into distractions and hedonism and all sorts of things like that, you know. Um, but that's probably well, not a good idea. On that note, it, it's not that very heartening to... <laughs> in, in, its, in its measure, in, in its correct measure. In its pure form. In its pure form. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, it's, it's really heartening to, you know, go on to one of these uh, kind of media-owned uh, websites like the Yahoo News Portal, you know, uh, open up an article uh, that's been put out by AP or, or UPI or, or uh, ABC News or whatever, and, and see uh, the, the larger numbers of people who, who are challenging the narrative in their comments to these articles. And um, it was interesting that uh, the New York Times put out a kind of I think an anti-Trump or anti-Russian uh, hit piece not too long ago, but closed the comment section on the article right. so that there couldn't be any um, there couldn't be any uh, voice of dissent or, mm-hmm. or uh, introduction of information that was. Uh, that's that's a, that's really horrible to do that. You know that that's actually that's like the twist in the knife because they throw out this information that makes people just go what the hell this doesn't make any sense i mean it's just confusing it doesn't it doesn't feel it doesn't answer any questions satisfactorily for uh, the people who are reading it and then to deny them the opportunity to simply express themselves in the comment in response to the thing that caused them stress you know it's like someone coming up to you and giving you a load of uh, t- talking a load of like you know garbled nonsense at you that just kind of makes you go what you're frying my brain here what are you you know and then you not being able to tell the person, you know, shut the hell up or I'm going to throw you off a cliff or something. I mean, not being able to respond to that source of stress that's in your face, you know. So no wonder people walk away and don't actually, you know, don't bother reading it anymore because it's a source of stress and they can't do anything about it. And the one area where they could vent a little bit and, and respond to that nonsense would be in the comment section. But and I, I've noticed it myself a lot. More and more uh, establishment media outlets are not allowing you to comment on it 
Well, the Guardian mm-hmm. website simply, yeah, they, they if I read Especially the articles that are yes. the most deceitful. They, they know. The, the ones that I can predict when I open certain ones, I'm scrolling down, I know they're not going to have a comment section yeah. on this. Ah, bingo. Because they know that they're putting out total BS. Or they don't know it, but... They have a narrative, of course, which is that, oh, well, this is one that's going to invite all of the criminal trolls on, so we won't allow for this one. Uh, there are other other sites of famous media outlets in Europe that simply, they shut down the, their comments section years and years ago because they they just, that was their, that was their response to criticism of yeah. the narrative they're putting out. Yeah. Simply, okay, no comments. Hmm. Pathetic. In, 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 in the free world, you know. In free speech land, you're not allowed to even comment on nonsense. Well. Harrison, did you check out the the Saker's claims about developments in the Donbass this week? Yeah, most of that's really going on. Um, you know, it's it's hard to, to get an idea of all the behind-the-scenes stuff, but what's going on there in the past week or so... Um, well, just a little bit of background. Starting in December, I believe this a bunch of you know Ukrainian vets um, who were fighting in the volunteer you know neo-Nazi battalions in the east started um, a, a pretty much grassroots, homegrown blockade of um, the train uh, rails coming you know going in between Donbass and the rest of Ukraine. So they're blocking any trains from from going to and fro, and that means that all of the um, coal coming from Donbass can't get to the west of the country. And the owners of these industries in the east are actually, you know, Ukrainian in the west. He owns many of these companies, but there's uh, but other of his kind of friends and cronies do, like uh, Akhmatov. And so these, uh, the neo-Nazi battalions are essentially blocking, um, you know, these oligarchs own, uh, you know, product from coming in to the rest of the country, which is totally, I mean, you know, shooting yourself in the foot because without Donbass coal, um, you know, there'll be energy shortages. They'll have to do, uh, you know, power blackouts and, um, you know, we'll just make the country even worse. So it's a dumb move, but... But the the government didn't really do anything about it um, because they can't. But that's that's a, another issue. We can get into that. But in response to this blockade, um, now the of course the companies in the in the east can't you know sell their wares, sell their coal. So they're not making not making the money that they used to. And so um, Zakharchenko and the and um, you know leader of Donetsk and the leaders of Lugansk gave an ultimatum essentially on I think it was like the. Uh, February 27th, saying, okay, um, you know, we'll give the Kiev government a week to shut down this blockade. Otherwise, we will start nationalizing these oligarchs' companies and, you know, running them ourselves and and screw you guys. And so the deadline came and they said, okay, we're nationalizing the companies. And they've started to do so. Of course, it's in, it's impossible to say um, how effective they've been at that and, you know, what exact measures they've taken, et cetera. But, um, you know, pretty much everyone's reporting that they've at least, you know, started that and are serious about it. So it's not a bluff or anything like that. So this is, it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny because it's a pretty 
genius move. It's it, it's it's kind of like it usually happens with Putin, where um, events just seem to happen in such a way that uh, benefits Russia, which of course you know is, is kind of just giving a giving material to all the anti-Putin people because they can just say, oh, well, you know, he must have planned it this way. But it's so it's kind of this this um, uh, like symphony of errors on the on Kiev's part that leads to a benefit for the Donbass. Because uh, Poroshenko's really what's that? Yeah, carry on. Okay, so Poroshenko's in in a in a bind here because on the one hand, um, he you know if he he's he's got he's only got a couple options. He can either like uh, you know just go to war again and you know ignore the issue, which won't solve anything, or he can break the blockade, um, which is an illegal blockade. This it's just a sign of how you know how far Ukraine has you know plummeted as a as a nation that um this you know illegal group of you know armed militants um are instituting this block this blockade on their own without any um you know authority to do so so the government um there have been several ukrainian you know top ukrainian politicians calling for uh you know a police action to break this blockade that would put poroshenko and the oligarchs up against uh the, the the neo Nazis in these battalions um, that effectively put them would, in power. Yeah, that effectively put them in power, and essentially would create like a a, a new civil war with the with the neo Nazis, um, and um, you know lead to uh, another Maidan. Or you know they can um, well, what other options do they have? They can, you know they're not getting their coal. Um, uh, you know, that, that's pretty much the only option they have. And if they don't do anything, so if they don't do anything, um, you know, the country, you know, can't turn on its electric, it's turn on its electricity. If they do go to war, it's like, um, you know, well, do you, do you really want to do that? No, you don't. So, um, but Donbass is in the position of, you know, either way it benefits them because, you know, they, um, they get to nationalize these companies, cut off, you know, kind of cement the, um, the cutoff of ties with with Kiev, um, you know, gain a bit more legitimacy because you well, know they're not the, the ones causing any of this. The, there are some there are some other developments we should maybe list them first. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. They're they're saying that now the only currency recognized yes. in in the Donbass is the Russian ruble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's de facto means it's now part of Russia or it's independent from Kiev. Uh, that on its own, not only are they, did they say, right, you won't let, it won't let us bring the coal in and sell it to, to the rest of Ukraine. And uh, they turned around and apparently sold it to Russia. Well, I think those are still in the, in the planning stages. They say right. that from now on, you know, we'll only be re- using the ruble and we'll be selling our, our coal to, to Russia. So I don't and think was, those things have actually they declared happened they, yet. They yeah. declared that they're no longer paying taxes to Kiev. Right, corporate taxes, anyway. Mm-hmm. But there was a there was a, there was a statement from someone in the uh, the EU put out a statement saying that you know since the EU is responsible for or feels a bit responsible for Ukraine and to a small extent, uh, they said we can solve your problem. Uh, have you can buy your coal from Russia? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Ukraine can buy the coal that it's not getting from the Donbass from Russia. But I had a I had yeah. a, I had a lovely thought there that maybe you know <laughs> that that. Uh, Donbass would would sell, sell its coal, or Russia would buy its coal from buy buy the coal from Donbass and then sell it back to Ukraine. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they could do that and make a profit. 
one last mm-hmm. development. Um, this would be, I mean, this would basically mean that de facto things are moving in Ukraine to recognize the partition of the country. Um, mm-hmm. Kiev declared that the line of contact, sort of the the place where they've temporarily said this is a border between Ukraine and the two breakaway republics, is now to be considered a border. Is that is that an official Kiev statement? Do we know? Um, I don't know for sure. I think that's another um, like um, you know future thing where they say you know f- um, either in the very s- near future you know that will be the case. So it's not the case right now. The, you know, the, there's been no official recognition that right. uh, that that will be the new border. It's the idea that um, um, you know in in some point at some point in the near future, given certain conditions. The 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 battalion. Oh, it's um, what it has to do is with a deal with the battalions, with the the volunteer battalions. That um, you know, if they were able to negotiate with them and come to some kind of agreement, they would be the new border guards because they're already on the border, right, along the mm-hmm. front line. Well, no, they're along the front line, and so that would turn into the new border, and they would be the official border guards. So it's it's kind of one of those proposals that's not yet totally official, mm-hmm. but that sh- kind of shows what direction things are going in. You know, now you've got both sides making moves and saying things as if in the near future you could have, um, you know, a, a really big shift in things that are that are going on there. That would be like a, a total de facto, you know, recognition of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk independence. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's one other element that, that may come into play uh, pretty soon. We'll see. And that is the fact that uh, when shortly before Yanukovych left yeah. Kiev to go to uh, Russia, basically to, to to save his own life, uh, he had he had written a letter to Putin to Russia, requesting some assistance uh, with yeah. the situation, requesting that, military assistance. Yes. So apparently, as the story goes, uh, th- this letter, which is legitimate, uh, was kind of uh, introduced into uh into the kiev somehow and they kind of made it known yeah, distributed that it like sent it to the un i think yes and and their reason was look he's he's pro-russian but but actually it the well they're saying, way to read it they're saying that this is the evidence that uh that he was treasonous yes is because he re- he requested russian military assistance but but legally what he did was was fine yeah and and the other fact is that the the very way that he left um was according to the ukrainian constitution illegal he would have had to have uh had to stay and get killed for it to be legal yeah he had there were like only four ways that he would have legitimately um so they're saying to him you broke the law get back here from russia so we can kill you well, and then so it'll be legal. Effectively, be a, according to the Ukrainian constitution, he is still the president yeah. of the Ukraine. I mean, mm. you know, well, no, so, no yeah. one's going to acknowledge that in the West, but yeah. but that's that's the legal fact of the matter. So essentially, what this is, because this is like new news, this is the Ukrainians saying, okay, well now you know we're releasing the evidence that Yanukovych was a traitorous bastard, and but the evidence they release actually just cements the the fact that Russia was. Any intervention that Russia would have done or did do, you know, in Crimea or elsewhere, mm-hmm. even in the Donbass and Lugansk, was legal according to the Ukrainian constitution. And, uh, you know, so retroactively, retrospectively, um, 
Ukraine, you know, officially asked for Russian intervention. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of the, another example of them shooting themselves in the foot because they've just revealed that, uh, that, that everything kind of happened. Russian was totally legal. Right. And everything that's happened in Ukraine over the past three, three years has, uh, was, was, that they claim was Russian intervention and Russian meddling was all legal. Mm-hmm. As legal and, and totally as ignoring the fact, yeah, as yeah, as, as legal as uh, as as Russian inter, Russian involvement in Syria, which was asked for, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And of course, they just conveniently forget to mention that uh, the overthrow of the government was totally illegal and unconstitutional. Right. Yeah, and they tried to like they tried to make it constitutional, but even like the the documents that they signed, and you know, they were signed by the wrong people that didn't have the authority to sign them. And the, the justifications they gave were unconstitutional. Like the, like Elon said, there are only a certain number of legitimate justifications for, you know, taking away the power, um, you know, and, and putting in a new leader. And mm. the, the justific- justification they gave was none of those reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got, we got to start a new political campaign. Bring back Yanukovych. Yeah. That'll go down well. All right. Um... We reached two hours, even though we were incommunicado for a little while. I think we'll um, we'll leave it there, guys, for this week's episode. And uh, thanks to our chatters, for, to our listeners, and all our chatters. It's always good to have you guys in there, uh, telling us what you think, and having fun, singing songs when we go off the air. Uh, we'll be back next week with another show to be announced um, so until then have a good evening everybody hope you're all well see you next week keep Bye-bye. thinking everybody big hugs to Gimpy take care <laughs>